portion of this first chapter and um, the last couple of verses of the second chapter and just tell you that this is the first section of this prophecy. If you read through the prophecy, you'll see this structure fairly evident. But the first part of each of these sections has to do with the prospect of judgment and the reasons for that judgment. But then the B part of each of these sections of the prophecy has to do with the promise of restoration, the hope of restoration. So you see it in section one. We'll be seeing it as we work our way through the book. So let's read together. Micah chapter one, beginning at verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And all this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I shall lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It is reached even to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And then verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. I surely will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. And they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. And their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we ask for your spirit. We ask for your help. We thank you for your word. And we again acknowledge that we need this work of your spirit so that we might enjoy the benefits that you intend for us to enjoy from your work. So bless us with your spirit and help us as we look at this particular portion of it, in particular as we look at Micah himself. Lord, help us in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I read to you from a book by Cornelius Plantinga book called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And, uh, I continue to read it. Um, I love it. I enjoy it. Um, it's uh, 
It's honest. It's insightful. It's penetrating. It's hopeful. It's really hopeful. Uh, but the thing that I read to you a couple of weeks ago that caused some of you to chuckle, which is good. It's good to chuckle. And what made you chuckle was this particular author's reflections on what the world might look like if the world were really good, if the world were, were good, if it really were sort of wrapped up and clothed in God's shalom, God's rest and peace and blessedness and abundance, if the world were pulsating with life, in every sense of that word, the fullest expressions of that word, rather than being so dragged down and dissipated by death in one form or another. And this is the phrase that provoked the chuckles. In this good world that this author tries to imagine, he says this, business associates would rejoice in one another's promotions. And then this is the thing that caught everybody's attention. Middling Harvard students, meaning mediocre Harvard students, middling Harvard students would respect Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. And they would seek to learn from them. Middling Harvard students would respect Phi Beta Kappas from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople and would seek to learn from them. That's a good world. That's a perfect world. That's a world in which God's shalom penetrates and permeates everything, where abundance and where life prevails. Now, why is it that that sort of a notion, Harvard students valuing students from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople, why, why is that such a bizarre thing? Why is it such a humorous thing to us? Well, it's because we don't live in a good world. We live in a deeply flawed world. It's kind of unimaginable and kind of unthinkable because in our world, people who go to Harvard or people who come from Harvard are more important, aren't they? They're more valuable. They're big people. They're big people. And people who go to the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople, they have less worth and less significance. They are smaller people. That's how life in our world works. You ask me where I went to college, I'll tell you that I graduated from the University of Michigan, which isn't Harvard. But a whole lot more compelling than telling you that I went to Southwestern Michigan Junior College in Dewajak, Michigan. Who brags about something like that? Nobody. Because we live in a culture that brags about credentials, that sees addresses and places and universities as badges to wear. It's, it's significant when somebody lives in New York City or comes from New York City or lives in Washington, D.C. or comes from Washington, D.C. And here's what happens. Here's the irony. Here's the strikingly penetrating thing about that. 
You may not live in New York City. You may not live in Washington, D.C. You may not go to Harvard. You may not have come from Harvard. But if you know somebody who lives in New York City or lives in Washington, D.C. or went to Harvard and comes from Harvard, you like for your friends to know. I know somebody who lives in New York City. I know somebody who lives in Washington, D.C. I know somebody who went to Harvard. We glom on to people of reputation if we don't have one so that by their reputations we can gain a reputation. Bingo. Right? That's the way life works in our world. But that's the world's economy, and it's not God's economy. As Francis Schaeffer so wonderfully captured it 40 years ago in a sermon of the same name, which I've stolen from him gladly and happily, in the economy of God, there are no little people and there are no little places. There are no little people and there are no little places. You know, well, I'm going to do it just for a second. I'm going to remind you that life is a tapestry. And the weaver of the tapestry, the one who is weaving together the whole of the tapestry of life, the whole of the tapestry of human existence, the whole of the tapestry of human existence, life, events, choices, deeds, the whole nine yards, the whole enchilada, the one who is weaving that tapestry is weaving your thread into that tapestry, and you don't see how your thread connects with other threads because you see the tapestry from the bottom. And to you, it just looks like a bunch of disordered, colored threads that make no sense much of the time. But on the top side of the tapestry is the one who is weaving together the whole picture of human history. And every thread makes sense. There are no little people, and there are no little places, and Micah is a marvelous, marvelous illustration. A wonderful illustration. Let's get at Micah as we get into his book, as we get into his prophecy. And let's think of Micah in terms of three words, the when and the where and the what of Micah. When was Micah around? Where was Micah from? And what did Micah do? The when and the where and the what of Micah's life help us to see a great deal about God and with him. There are no little people and there are no little places. When did Micah live? Well, I'm going to encourage you, if you would, to think about these great and significant events in the history of God's people so that you can fix Micah at a particular place in time. The, the great events in the history of the Old Testament leading from the creation down to the time of Christ, Christ coming in fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament, are really few. If you were to have asked an Israelite of Jesus' day, what are the mile markers along the way, the big mile markers, the big signposts along the way? They would say the first one is Abraham. Fix Abraham in your calendar, in your chronology, at about 2000 B.C. The whole period of the patriarchs follows Abraham. And that leads to the birth of 
of all of those sons and daughters who then went with Israel, Jacob, following the son, Joseph, down into Egypt. And that, of course, led to the proliferation of the people. They became so numerous and everything that Pharaoh was threatened by them. And that all, of course, resulted in the Exodus. And that's sort of the next big mile marker along the way, from 2000 to Abram to about 1500, the Exodus. And then about 500 years later, is sort of the high water mark in Israel's life as a nation, the rule and reign of David, followed by the rule and reign of Solomon, his son, the reign of peace. You want to know what the, the reign of peace, the reign of the shalom of God looks like? Read 2 Kings 4, the end of the chapter, and you get a description of Solomon's reign. And just see that, I've said this to you before, but just recognize that as a snapshot, a little snapshot of what the consummation of all things is going to look like. Superabundance, tranquility, peace on every side, every person, every man, building his own house on his own piece of property, living under the shade of his own vines and fig trees. That's the next big high-water mark. Abram, Exodus, David, his reign, followed by Solomon and his reign, and then things begin to deteriorate. And the kingdom is divided around 950 B.C. into the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. Both of those kingdoms are in view in this prophecy. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. And where do you fix Micah? You fix Micah at about 750 B.C., about 200 years after the division of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the burden of Micah's prophecy is essentially twofold. It is to warn both Samaria and Jerusalem of coming judgment. And it is to promise the people of God, the remnant of God, that a day of restoration is coming. That's what we see as we work our way to But that's where you fix Micah, about 750 B.C., and here's why I make a point of this, and I've made this point before, but I want to make it again. In case there's any question in your minds about what the Bible is and how the Bible thinks, if you will. Let me try to put those questions aside. When you come to the Bible, you don't come to fairy tales. You don't come to myth. You don't come to an owner's manual. You don't come to something that gives you insight for living, not to pick on a particularly popular radio program. And trust me, there is plenty of insight for living in the scriptures. There is plenty of wisdom to be found in the scriptures. And if you heed that wisdom, you take that wisdom seriously, you're moving in the direction of the way life is supposed to work, and things will go better for you. No question about it. But again, when you come to the Bible, you don't come to myth, you don't come to fairy tale, you don't come to an owner's manual, but you come to history. You come to real history, real space, real time, where real people live real lives. That's what you come to when you come to Micah. And I mention this again. 
because both subtly and not so subtly, there are pressures all around you. And I, I gotta, I gotta say this especially to students. I beg of you, I plead with you now to think through these things now. To ask your questions, to wrestle through your questions, to think through these things now because there are subtle and not so subtle pressures all around you that are seeking to push your beliefs, push your convictions, push your understanding of what is true out of the realm of the objective and the historical into the realm of the subjective and the person. Doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. You're surrounded by a culture that wants to say that to you. And after they've said it to you, they want to say to you, believe what you want to believe, but don't impose it on me or anybody else. You live in a culture that wants to press these things to the periphery. But the central and pivotal thing, the thing that is crucial for me as a preacher to remind you of, a minister of the Word of God, and something that is crucial for you to understand and to know and to wrestle with is that the things you come to in the Scriptures are real things that happen in real places in a real material and physical world. And Micah, Micah's remains are someplace. They're dust in a box somewhere or their dust that has just sort of been absorbed by the ground around it. But Micah's remains are someplace, and Micah, who is fixed at a real place, in real time, points from himself to another real place in real time and to real events that would occur, and those events have ultimately to do with the person of Jesus Christ. He is the king who is referred to in chapter 2. The king who passes on before them. The Lord who is at their head. He is the one who is referred to in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. A passage that we're going to read that you know. And you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origin is of old, who is of ancient of days. Micah, a real person at a real place in real time, looks down the hallway of history to another place and another time, not far from where he is. And he preaches the promise of a coming king. He is not only a coming king. The central and pivotal thing about Jesus Christ, the king who has come, is that complex of events that occurred at a real place, in real time, and which you could have photographed if you had done that. Because at a real place, in real time, the coming king offered himself to a real and horrible death and was certifiably dead and buried 
entombed and certifiably came out of that tomb to live again. And those things, when we come to the Bible, are not the things of myth and fairy tale, and they are far more than instructions for living. I have a very dear friend who preached in this church for my installation in February of 2007, Mike Francis, who prayed for him periodically on Sunday evening. Mike called me yesterday to tell me that at 5.15 on Saturday morning, he received a phone call from a member of his church, an elder in his church, a father, a husband. And the father, the husband, called my friend Mike to tell Mike that his daughter had been killed in an automobile accident not four hours before that phone call, 25 years old. It is not fairy tales. It is not myth. It is not insight for living. It is not wishful thinking that my friend Mike takes with him as he walks into the chaos of grief and doubt and fear and uncertainty that that family is experiencing right here today. Micah is a real man living in a real place who looks down the hallway of history and doesn't fully understand it and can't fully see it, but he tells us about one who is coming who when he comes will say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet will he live. And who, having said those things, goes to the grave and vanquishes sin and death and rises victorious over sin and death so that he can stand before you in the preaching of the gospel and can say the same thing to you because he's not a dead savior. He is a living savior ruling and reigning as king of glory at the right hand of his father. And he, in the mystery of the foolishness of preaching, by the spirit of God, stands before you and says the same thing. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, even if he dies, yet will be. Amen. That is what my friend walks into the chaos of that family's life. And my dear friends, that stuff is not the stuff subject to personal experience and preference. And if it is, and this comes off, we all go home. That is who. And that is a bit of the plan of Michael's existence. A real man in real history. A history that is behind us. A history that looked ahead to these events. 
So I want to beg of you and I want to plead with you, all of you, and anyone here who has a question about these things, that you stare the reality of human existence squarely in the face and you understand that it is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has come into the world to overcome the last and greatest enemy. And if he is yours and you are his, you have nothing to do. Now, where is he from? Well, this is really fun. He's from a small place. He's from a place called Morasheth, which is the west, to the west of Jerusalem. The interesting thing about Morasheth is that the archaeologists who have sort of dug up this little village find records of its existence. But it's always referred to as Morasheth Gath. That's how it's referred to in verse 14 of chapter 1 of Micah. Morasheth Gath. It's like it didn't have an identity of its own. It wasn't big enough, significant enough to have an identity of its own. So it had to glom on to the identity of another. It had to glom on to the identity of Gath, which is one of five Philistine cities, which were always a problem for Israel. The Philistines were always leaving Gath and making their way into Judah and terrorizing women and children and men in the villages and towns of Judah. And so not only is Morasheth associated with Gath, it's associated with a place that was viewed with contempt by Israelites. Morasheth Gath. Can anything good come from Morasheth Gath? Does that sound familiar? It's a place of a place of no place. It's a place of Kupal, North Dakota. It's unimportant. And that's where Micah comes from. Can you imagine Micah making his way up to Jerusalem from Morasheth, Gath, a small, inconsequential place in a region that was held in contempt by the cosmopolitan and important and significant people of Jerusalem? Can you imagine Micah wandering into Jerusalem and beginning to preach that judgment is going to come to Jerusalem? you get a picture of Jesus here. Jesus who left another place of contempt. Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus, another person with less than stellar credentials. Jesus, a person whose parentage was in question. Are we? Remember? We know where Abraham came from, but you, we don't know where you've come from raising the question of his paternity. His mother was pregnant before she was married. Less than credible qualifications. But see, God doesn't need credentials. This God doesn't need qualifications. This God doesn't need Harvard PhD. This God doesn't need an address in New York City or Washington, D.C. All this God needs is someone faithful. 
someone who by the grace of God, having tasted the wonder of God's mercy and kindness, says what Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. It's remarkable how frequently God uses the poor, the weak, the frail, the little known, the unknown, in order to establish his own glory and greatness. This is Reformation Sunday. Everybody, I mean, there are preachers, maybe most of them Lutheran, but preachers all over this country who are reciting in sermons those great words of Martin Luther when he was put on trial at Worms and and Cardinal Eck was cross-examining him and asking him about his books and 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 Charles was seated on his throne as the, the the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation and and he had Luther's life in his hands and had power of life and death and and Luther stands before the diet you know stands before nobles and princes and and theologians and utters these great words since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Meaning, without, without conflict. You know, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm just going to speak truth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That was April 18, 1521. But most people don't know, unless you've read Roland Bainton's biography or some other biography, is that Luther first appeared before the Diet on April 7th. He was first asked the question, Will actually appeared on the 16th of April, but by the 17th they got to the question, Martin, are you going to recant these things that you've written? Are you going to repent of your sin? Are you going to repudiate all of this? That was on April 17th, 1521. And you know what Martin Luther said on April 17th, 1521? I need some time to think about it. May I have a day For the next 24 hours without sleep, he prayed, he wept, he experienced nervous exhaustion, he fell apart. And it was on the next day, in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his terror, facing the consequence, the likelihood that he would be banished and perhaps executed, not with boldness conveyed in movies, but with a trembling voice, constrained by the teaching of Scripture, constrained by his own conscience, he said, unless I'm convinced by sacred Scripture evident reason, I can't repent. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, and he could barely be heard. God doesn't use 
self-reliant, mighty, confident, powerful people with credentials and the right address and the right degrees behind their names. God uses the weak, the fumbling, the frail. Someday I'm going to preach a sermon with the title, God Has Two Addresses. And the text is Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the Lord, high and holy, and the one who inhabits eternity. Address number one. And who dwells with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit. Address number two. You know that Martin Luther's father was a, a worker in the mines. He was a miner. You know that his first appointment as a professor of theology was to a second-rate university in a cultural backwater in Germany, the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. Do we know that books and articles and essays have been written about his struggles with depression and spiritual discouragement? They are the subject of all kinds of wild analysis. The guy was nuts. Throwing inkwells at the devil. Barking, yelling at the depth with other people to hear. Certifiably nuts. By some standards. with God, the great and majestic God, there is a willingness to take a minor son, weak, frail, filled with self-doubt, plagued by discouragement and depression, a Micah in his own day, and raise him up and use him for the good of his people for the glory of his name. With God, there are no little people and there are no little places. And Micah is a perfect example of that, as was he. And then there's the what, finally, of Micah's ministry. What happened? Well, very quickly, if you read 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20, you'll see there the history in which Micah finds himself and in which he expresses the call of God and his ministry among the people of God. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and he's living in Jerusalem. The king of Assyria has attacked Samaria, and he's threatening to destroy Jerusalem. And Sennacherib, who is that king, writes a letter to Hezekiah and basically says to Hezekiah, your gods will do you no good. Nobody else's gods have helped them as I've marched across this part of the world and trampled everything under my feet. You're foolish if you think your gods are going to help you. And Hezekiah takes the letter from Sennacherib. He goes into the holy place. He spreads it before the Lord. And he prays before the Lord and asks the Lord 
to come and defend him and defend his people and defend the city of Jerusalem. And it is Isaiah, interestingly enough, Micah's contemporary, Isaiah of the 66 books, Isaiah of the gospel in the Old Testament found in Isaiah, unlike it's found anyplace else in the whole of the Old Testament, arguably. It's Isaiah, the man from the upper class family, the statesman in Jerusalem. It's Isaiah who delivers the Lord's answer to Hezekiah, who tells Hezekiah that it is in fact Sennacherib who will fall and not Jerusalem. Micah is not mentioned at all. But if you look at Jeremiah, chapter 26, verses 17 and following, you read this. And Jeremiah has been arrested, been arrested because he's prophesying that God is going to come and he's going to come in judgment. He is the Luther of that day. Micah was the Hus, the Tyndall of the previous day. Jeremiah is just voicing the words, echoing the words that Micah had pronounced a hundred years and more before. When Jeremiah is arrested and arraigned and brought before the court, verse 16, Jeremiah 26, the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of God, in the name of the Lord. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Remember Micah of Moresheth, how he prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem become a heap of ruins, the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. See how the tapestry gets woven together? It was because of the preaching of Micah that Hezekiah repented, that the Judahites repented, that the Jerusalemites repented, and the stay of execution was then enforced in Jehovah because of the preaching of Micah. Isaiah's not mentioned. So what's the proverbial rest of the story? The rest of the story is that a particular man at a particular place in a particular time was raised up out of obscurity by the infinite personal God who is really there to fulfill his purposes, God's purposes, in his day, and the fruit of that, the ministry of life, was a revival and a restoration of the true religion in the capital city, Jerusalem, and in the kingdom. With God, there are no little people, and there are no little places. For God's sakes, God roams the earth with you. As those who fear him, who honor him, and who simply as Micah and Luther before 
us who will simply seek to be faithful to Him in their death. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. And thank you that in the gospel is this wonderful reality. That you, the infinite personal God, have come into our world, into our space, our time, into our physical, material place to live, to die, to be raised again. And I thank you that even today you are still raising up from obscurity. People who will serve you in their particular places, in their particular time. Lord, grant me, grant us, grant us grace to rest in you and to be faithful before you. And would you take our humble, broken, weak, and frail faithfulness and use it for the honor of Christ and the benefit of his people in pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing number 524, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, number 524.